0: I titled this morning's message, When Jesus Saw Their Faith. The three virtues of the Christian faith are these three words, faith, hope, and love. And as we've been going through chapter 8 and now starting into chapter 9 this morning, we're really going to see these three words being worked out in our Lord. In chapter 8, Jesus cleansed a leper. He also healed a centurion servant who was sick and was ready to die. He healed Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with a fever. He also healed many others who were brought to him at Peter's house that night who were sick and many of them who were demon-possessed. And then chapter 8 ends with Jesus delivering two men over in Gadarea there that were demon-possessed. Today, we're going to begin chapter 9 with Jesus healing a paralytic who is brought to him. I mean, just think of the life of Jesus. Think of what it was to walk with him just for a day. And and these were uh, things that were transpiring day in and day out. We have a Lord that is so compassionate, so full of love towards you and I, towards mankind. He's a God that wants to fill us with hope and give us hope. Even in a world that we see that is crumbling around us, we sit here this morning with hope in our hearts. But he's also a God of faith. And he loves it when we exercise faith. On this particular day, Jesus actually saw faith in action. From the time that Jesus called his disciples to follow after him and even from that very first day, he began a good work in them. Uh, It was a work of faith. It was a work of testing their faith. Did anyone notice that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ? That you came to a whole new understanding about trials and difficulties of life and then this whole issue of faith. And what does faith look like in our lives from a day-to-day basis? Well, these disciples they themselves were being tested by the Lord. You see there's saving faith when you give your life to Christ, but there's also a faith that is tested. And so we all as believers have our faith taste tested day in and day out. And it's really not for the Lord's benefit, it's for our benefit so that we can really see what type of faith do I really have? That what do I possess? Is it little faith or is it great faith? Jesus also taught his disciples back in the Sermon on the Mount about worry and faith. How many of us have that issue of worry? I think we could all raise our hands. Anxiety, worry. How does faith work with that? The Lord wanted to teach them something. We read in chapter 6, verse thirty that Jesus had to give a gentle rebuke. This was a gentle one. And he said to them, uh, he was talking about being clothed and the food that they would eat. and, And then Jesus says, why do you worry about those things? And his gentle rebuke was this, O ye of little faith. He didn't say, oh, you have no faith, but your faith is little. If you find yourself worrying and full of anxiety over the very things of life that we need for necessity, Jesus says your faith is little. I own it all. I can provide the necessities of life. So why do you worry? He also taught them about great faith. Remember when the centurion told Jesus that he could heal his servant with just a word from his mouth. He didn't even need to be there in his presence. Lord, if you'll just say it with the very word of your mouth, he'll be healed. And Jesus then told those who were following him that day, he says, I have not found such great faith Not even in Jerusalem. Jesus was marveling at the faith of this centurion that would come and just say, You could just say it with a word and it would be done. Jesus deemed that as great faith. Jesus also tested the disciples' faith again in chapter 8, verse 26. When Jesus was asleep, remember that? In the head of the boat. And that storm came down on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples began to cry out, Lord, save us. Have you ever been in that place? Desperate. Your life is on the line. Lord, save us. We're perishing. As they called out to the Lord. And then we see Jesus rebuking the wind. He rebukes the wind and the sea, and he says to his disciples again, why are you so fearful? He says, O ye of little faith. Another gentle rebuke. But he was teaching them a lesson. I think we all have had these same lessons taught, and we continue at times probably to hear those Still, small voice in our heart that just says, Oh, ye of little faith. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to read that Jesus saw faith in action. You know, faith is one of those things that is active, it's not just something that we say theologically, it's something that's demonstrated with our lives. We're going to see when we get to verse 22 of this chapter that there's going to be a woman who has a flow of blood. And in her mind, all she has to do is touch the hem of Jesus' garment. That's all she has to do. That's her faith. And then Jesus says to this woman, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. The Lord loves it. That simple faith, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, that's all that would be needful. Also in verse 29, we're going to see two blind men that are going to be healed and because they believe that Jesus was able to do it. That was their faith. They believed that he was able to take blinded eyes and make them see And Jesus said to them, according to your faith, so let it be. And he healed their blinded eyes. He loves it when we put our faith in action. When we actually believe him and we step forward in faith and say, God, I'm going to stand upon this. In these three gospels, we find faith spoken of 29 times. And in these Gospels, we see the word faith. We see the words little faith. We also see no faith. And we see great faith. Uh, Different aspects of faith. We've probably been in all of these places in life. But 12 of those 29 times, we find them in the Gospel of Matthew that we're in. Last week... Jesus and his disciples crossed over the Sea of Galilee. And they came to the area of the Gadareans. And when Jesus and his disciples stepped out of that boat, we're told that Jesus was met by two demon-possessed men. And Jesus allowed the demons to come out of those men. He allowed it. He allowed them to come out and then to go into the swine. And then we read that that herd of swine ran violently down the hillside into the Sea of Galilee. And they perished there in the water. Our story this morning is in chapter 9 where Jesus is going to heal this paralytic, this paralyzed man. And all three of uh, of the Gospels, the uh, Synoptic Gospels, they all contain this story. Matthew, though, has the shortest. It only has eight verses that we're looking at. Mark gives it 12 verses, and Luke gives it 10 verses. So let's read in our Bibles. Look at your Bibles, chapter 9, starting in verse 1. So Jesus got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and he departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. We have an incredible Lord. An incredible Lord that not only wants to touch and heal people, but he always, as I've been sharing, has a bigger picture in mind. He's always doing something more than just what's right in front of them. And we're going to see that this morning. Let's look a little closer at these verses. We're told in verse 1, So Jesus got into a boat. Now he's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, across from Capernaum, and we're told that he crossed back over and he came to his own city. That city is the city of Capernaum. Mark tells us that the city was Capernaum. And We already learned also that this was Jesus and his disciples, their base. This was the place that they ministered from. They slept there many nights in between their travels around Galilee. But it was their place of ministry, the city of Capernaum. Mark also... Mark's gospel and you're going to hear me going back and forth between the Gospels to pull out different aspects of this story. But Mark also says that the people of the city that they heard that Jesus was in the house. And so they come back across the sea in this boat, get out on the shoreline. Capernaum was a seaside uh, village as you can see there, right on uh, the Sea of Galilee. and they make their way back, to probably the house of Peter. That was the house they were in that evening before they, they took off to the other side. Luke says that now it happened on a certain day, speaking of this particular day, that Jesus was teaching and that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law that were sitting by, who came out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that in the midst of these people that are there in this house, possibly of Peter's, the, there were these Pharisees and these scribes that were also in that group. Luke also tells us that it was as Jesus was teaching that men brought him a paralytic to be healed. So here's Jesus in this house teaching this multitude of people and here comes these men carrying this paralytic to be healed. We read in verse 2, it says, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus... Look at your Bibles. When Jesus saw their faith. He actually saw their faith. I like that wording. He saw faith in action being worked out here. Jesus said to the paralytic, he said, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Mark's gospel says that the paralyzed man was brought by four men. Four friends that brought him along. Isn't that what really what friends should do? Isn't that what true friends should do? If you know somebody without Jesus Christ that doesn't know the Lord, you love them, you care for them, we should seek to bring those people to Jesus. This man needed a healing. They believed that Jesus was able to do that. His four friends cared for him. And they brought this man to Jesus. Matthew tells us that they brought him to Jesus lying on a bed. Luke tells us that he was paralyzed. Here's this man laying, we could call it a cot. We could call it a a stretcher that they have this man laying on. And here comes these four men, one on each corner, carrying their friend that was paralyzed. What's interesting in this story is that we're told in verse 2 that Jesus saw their faith when they did this. They saw their he saw their faith. And I don't believe that it was just the paralytic's faith. I believe it was the faith of the four friends that were actually bringing him along as he lay there on the stretcher, they were convinced in their hearts that if they could get him to Jesus, he would be able to heal them. That's faith in action. They put it to action and actually carried him there, believing that he could do it. Mark's gospel says that when these four men... Uh, when they got to that house, it says that they could not come near Jesus. They couldn't even get in the doorway. They couldn't make their way. That's a typical house. Not the house. That's a typical house of what it might have looked like. I want you to picture all the people standing out in this courtyard here. The doorway off to the side. The stairway going up to the top. And then, even coming onto the rooftop of this, of this, uh, of Peter's home there. And we read that when these four men brought this paralytic to this house, that it was crowded with people. They couldn't even get into the courtyard, they couldn't get into the doorway. And so they began to make their way up the staircase, up to the top, carrying this paralytic on this cot. And we're told that they, got on top of the roof, which would have been like a thatched roof. And they began to break through the thatch, pulling it aside. This is faith being worked out. They, they, they begin to uncover the roof where Jesus was, we're told, so that when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. They lowered him with, right down through the hole in the roof. Incredible. These friends were going out of their way, or these friends were going out of their way for a friend. They were going the extra mile. They were doing what it took to get their friend to Jesus. I think when I look at this story, I look at this as being something radical. This is radical faith to me being worked out. Put yourself in that place. I'm going to get my friend to Jesus, whatever it takes. I know you guys like pictures. So I'm giving you some pictures. These friends that were there are, uh, are lowering Jesus down. Just just think of what this is looking like. I have to picture that Jesus probably had this huge smile on his face. I don't think that he was put off by it. I don't think he was, you know, like, what's going on here? I think he was looking at it, realizing and knowing what was going on. And he had this huge grin on his face as he watched this taking place. Here's this crowd of people that are in the house. It's packed. It's packed inside and out with people. People that have come to try and hear Jesus' teaching. They're trying to get close to Jesus. They're not going to let those four men bring that paralytic through the crowd, through the doorway. They're not going to let them in. They already have their place there in the house. And their only option was, we got to get him up on the roof. We'll lower him down through the top. Here we see these friends walking up this adobe brick house up these stairways there and they get him up on the top and they start digging can you picture how that looked inside the house dirt fall, falling down dust flying and here they break it away and all this thatch falling down and everything and then all of a sudden they're lowering him down to Jesus pretty incredible This is faith in action. I think Jesus loves it when each of us do the same. You know, faith is not afraid of failing. Are you afraid of failing at times? When you take steps in ministry or whatever it might be, just steps in life, faith is not afraid of failing. Faith appears at times to ourselves and even to others to be reckless. (laughs) Look at at these guys breaking through the roof to, to bring their friend to Jesus. It appears to be radical at times of what Christians will do in faith. Faith is also, and I shared this Last week, it's the absence of fear. Faith is the absence of fear. In 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we all know this verse. We walk by faith, not by sight. (laughs) That's what the Lord loves to see in us. A growing faith, a maturing faith. One that doesn't always have to see something for us to believe. In Hebrews 11:6, the writer wrote, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's impossible to please God without faith. We need to have faith to be saved, but he also honors faith when we believe in him. Faith, simply put, is believing God at his word. You don't know how it will happen, but you know that it will. You don't know how it's going to happen, but you are assured that it's going to happen. That's faith. I remember a a good friend of mine back in California asking me this question when we were making preparations to move to North Carolina. To start this church. That's why we came here, to plant Calvary Chapel Fellowship. He asked me, How do you see a church starting when you don't know a soul in North Carolina? You don't know anyone there. How do you see a church coming about from nothing? And you know what I said to him? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how God's going to do it. I don't know how God's going to put all this together. I don't know. And not always knowing, and we don't have to always know right off. But what I did say to him is that I know God's going to do it. I know God's going to do it. I'm so glad to be standing here today and seeing this church that has begun here, the people that God has brought along. God has brought, I believe, each one of you that are here, I hope you're able to say, I believe God's brought me here to Calvary Chapel Fellowship. And if he's called you here, then you're part of this church. You're a member of Calvary Chapel Fellowship. And I can stand here and say, you know, before the Lord, and he's my witness, you know what? God has done this. I didn't do it. I didn't know one of you when we came here. Kathy didn't know any of you. We just came and started with five people, in the, and, and here God has brought you along. And a church was birthed from nothing. God did it. And God gets all the glory for it back in verse 2 we read that when Jesus saw their faith Jesus said to the paralytic son be of good cheer your sins are forgiven you and as i read this i have to think that the paralytic and his four friends that they were not expecting these words Remember, they brought him there because he's paralyzed. They wanted to bring him there to receive a healing. And here's Jesus. The first thing he says is, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus, we brought him here to be healed, not to have his sins forgiven. I started thinking about How often as Christians we see needs, and quite often it's in our family members, it's in loved ones, it's friends, it's people that we know. We see these people that we love in great physical need, financial needs, all kinds of needs. And we, we just, because of our love for our heart goes out and we just want to help. We want to do whatever we can to pull them out of this hardship, pull them out of this, this hard time that they're in. But quite often, we only look at the material things. We don't see the spiritual need that they're in. And sometimes sometimes people are in desperate straits and really what they need is they need Jesus Christ. Yes, we want to reach out to people that are hurting and in pain and hell. But does it ever just go around in your head that the most important thing they need right now is Jesus? They need to come to know him. All their hardships, all their struggles, they're banging their head up against the wall with life's difficulties. Maybe God's doing something to bring them to Christ. And Lord, help me to be open. Help me to have my spiritual eyes on to see their greatest need You see, Jesus never missed the greatest need. I used to go down to Skid Row, which was a place down in Los Angeles County in California there, and I used to go on the streets and share the gospel with the homeless people and the drug addicts and the prostitutes that were down there. And there were many. We'd walk around on the streets and in the beginning days, we would pull our van up there and we'd begin to feed the people. And we'd have loads of people coming and we'd give them the food and then they would just all kind of wander off. And in time, I started thinking, you know what, what we need to do is we need to do this in a, in a better way. And so instead of pulling up the van and uh, opening up the doors and feeding everybody and then letting them go... We began to carry around the food in a, in a, in a bag and, and then we'd walk the street sharing the gospel and then we would share the gospel but then we would also feed them. And what it did for us is it brought about a balance to the people, those people, they needed Jesus Christ more than they needed food in their mouth. They didn't see it, they didn't realize it, but we knew it that, that, that that's what they needed. Jesus knew this paralytic Needed him. He needed his sins forgiven. And so Jesus says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Also, knowing that even this paralyzation, and we don't know what that came from, a lot of times sickness in life, it comes as a result really of just the fallen world that we live in. It doesn't mean that he was in that state because of a specific sin, though it could have been, but that he was in a world like we are. And we experience these sicknesses and these things in life, but Jesus wanted to forgive him of his sin. These words, son be of good cheer, they're actually words of encouragement. What Jesus is saying to this Paralytic is, be encouraged, or in other words, congratulations, your sins have been forgiven. And Isn't that the kind of congratulation that you'd want to hear? He's here paralyzed, but the biggest congratulations, your sin has been forgiven. Do you remember the day that your sins were forgiven? Think of the day that you came to that realization when you gave your life to Christ that every sin that you've ever committed was forgiven. And then it got even better. You realized as you grew in your understanding of these things that his blood even cleanses you from sin today. And that his shed blood is even covering the sins of your future sins tomorrow. And you're going, wow, It's incredible forgiveness. Son, your sins are forgiven. But then look at your Bibles at verse 3. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. (laughs) At once, immediately when they heard those words out of the lips of Jesus... This man blasphemes. Mark's gospel says, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's reserved for God alone to be able to forgive sins. Isn't religion ugly? (laughs) Religion is ugly. And when you have religious people that, you know, it's ugly within the church when people are just religious people. And religion in itself is an ugly thing. Here are these scribes and these Pharisees saying within sight of themselves, this is blasphemy. Your sins are forgiven. Luke 5.17 says that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law that were in that room on that day. And it says, and they were sitting by. Get that picture in your mind. These scribes and the Pharisees kind of just sitting off to the side, listening to the teacher as Jesus taught. Probably wanting to nitpick everything that he might say trying to pick up on and then they heard it. And this is blasphemy that he would say these words. Mark says that some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Maybe not saying anything with their mouth, but reasoning in their hearts. Church, we don't want to be Pharisees in the church. We don't want to be like the scribes and the Pharisees that sit around and try to nitpick and try to find the sins that we see in each other's lives. You know, through the years this is what I found is that the holy spirit of god is the best one to convict people of sin. When I get up here and I teach the Word of God, I let God's Word do what it does. I let God's Holy Spirit do what it does. I don't stand up here and I look out amongst you and I try to pinpoint the sins in your life. I let God's Holy Spirit do that. There is a word of caution for us as a church when we become those people that are trying to be sin sniffers. You know what a sin sniffer is? It's somebody that would love to come around in front of your house and lift the lid on your trash can and see what you have in it. What kind of bottles and cans you might have in there or what they might find. That's a sin sniffer. And we have that even within the church. People looking for those things so that they might call you out on it. We have to be careful with that. The Lord is the one who convicts people of sin and brings those things about. Paul speaking to the Christians at Galatia, he wrote in Galatians 6 1, he says, Brethren, talking to Christians here, if a man or I'll put a woman is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit. Of gentleness. In other words, if that opportunity comes before you and God calls you to go and speak to a person about sin, then do it in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So when I put myself in that position to bring out somebody's sin, am I looking back at myself first? And many times Pharisees and the scribes, they say, well, I don't do that. Oh, I would never do that. But in the sense, you're doing the same thing just in another way. The Lord says, consider yourself first before you begin to judge that person's sin. We also read in chapter 5, verse 19, at the end of James, James says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he turns a sinner from the error of his way, will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. It's not wrong to go after a brother or sister that has walked away from the Lord or is walking in sin. Nothing wrong with that. But we should always be seeking to see that person restored. And we can save that person from going down a hard path if it's done in love if it's done according to the leading of the lord notice that it was some of the scribe it wasn't all of the scribes and the pharisees but some of the scribes there was just some of them that were there and notice that they were not saying any of these words out loud they weren't saying anything with their lips these were things that they were reasoning in their hearts. They were saying things inside of themselves. It brings up another caution for us. We should never fall to the trap of ever thinking that if you don't say something out loud, that God's not going to hold you accountable. Do you know that God will hold you accountable with the things that you reason in your heart? The evil thoughts that you have in your heart, the things that you say inside, but you would never say it with your mouth, God will hold you accountable with that. Very important to know. We think because we don't say it out loud, maybe I'm all right. These religious scribes were saying in their hearts, why does this man Jesus speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what was stirring inside of them. These religious Pharisees. What they didn't realize is that in this particular day, and in what they were saying in their heart, they were actually making the clearest deca- declaration that Jesus is God. That's really you know, God is. He's He's God in flesh. No one can forgive sins but God alone. That's because he is God. Jesus is God in flesh. He's all man and he's all God. They may have been thinking in their minds about about Leviticus 4.20, which actually gave the priest the right to be able to go out and make atonement for the sins of the people. And for them to be able to say to a person that they're forgiven, the Pharisees and the scribes would have had no problem with that. If Jesus was himself a priest, and he was saying to a person, your, your sins are forgiven, he would, they would have had no problem with that. What they had a problem with... Was the words by which Jesus said, "Your sins are forgiven"? He was saying something more complete than just you're forgiven right now, but you are completely forgiven is what Jesus was saying. These Pharisees may have been thinking about Isaiah forty three twenty five, which says that says this, where God declared this Himself. I Even I am he who blots out or removes your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They might have known, and I do believe they knew, this is why it was blasphemed to them for him to make that kind of a statement. You're completely forgiven of your sins. Your sins have been removed. We read in verse 4, but Jesus knowing their thoughts. (laughs) Here's Jesus knowing their thoughts. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts? I shared last week that Satan has the inability to read your mind. He can't read your mind. He can't get into your head and see what's going on in your heart and all that. That is something that only God can do. You see, the only way Satan knows what's going on is if you say it, or you act it, or you do something. Because he, he he's not all-knowing. He can't see that. He doesn't have the ability to do that. But Jesus does. He can see our hearts. He can see our thoughts. He knows what's inside of us. But today... I think we're reminded from these words of Jesus, and it's really that caution, that nothing is hid before God. The Bible says that you stand naked before God with whom you have to do. You can't hide anything. So don't try. The best thing for us to do as Christians is just to lay it all out. I have an evil thought, bad thought. Well, lay it out to God and say, God, forgive me. You saw it anyway. We think sometimes because it's just no one saw it and I didn't say it, that God didn't see it and that's not true. We're not told what the evil thoughts were of these scribes and these Pharisees. We know that blasphemy was punishable by death. It's possible that they could have thinking this is bl- this guy's deserving of death. But I think that probably in this particular case, the evil thoughts could have simply meant they were thinking badly of the words that he just said there. We know that later on that these kinds of words actually did lead to our Lord's death because they hated the statements that he made. Jesus goes on to address their evil questions In verse 5, look at your Bibles. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins? Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now the obvious answer to the question here is it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say that. Why? Because nobody else in the room would be able to tell if that was done or not. To to say to the man, rise up and get up to your feet, that's a little harder, isn't it? Because everyone's going to be an eyewitness, they're going to know when you said those words. But to say your sins are forgiven, how does anybody know that it really happened? So in a sense, it's easier to say that. So here's the bigger picture in this story that I always try to bring out in these, in these stories of Jesus. Jesus saw great faith, and he honored that faith on that day when those men brought him in. And, and then he was going to heal the paralyzed. He's going to forgive him, but he's also going to heal him Physically. The bigger picture is, is that Jesus is going to show all of those in the house on that day that he also has the ability to forgive sins. You see, the healing was important. He wanted to take this man out of his state of being paralyzed and put him on his feet. And that in itself was going to bring great testimony to all in the room. But your sins are forgiven. That was what Jesus wanted everyone in that house to hear. That he not only has the ability to heal, but the ability to forgive man of his sins. Jesus says to this man, Arise and take up your bed and go to your house. And we read, in verse 7 and he the paralyzed man rose and he departed to his house when they arrived at the house the house was packed with people they couldn't get them get the paralyzed man through the crowd but here jesus raises this man to his feet and tells him to now, depart. And I believe this man went out the doorway. Why was he able to get out? Because the people were standing there with awe, with their jaws hanging down in amazement at what had just happened. And they basically let the man go as he walked out of that house on that day. We read in verse 8, When the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God who had given such power to men. Can you imagine the looks on the people's faces? Your sins are forgiven. Stand to your feet and now go back to your home. Show these people you're completely healed. Mark says, so that all were amazed and they glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Luke says, that they were all amazed and they glorified God and it says they were filled with fear. Fear. Amazement. As they saw what just took place, they were glorifying God. They were amazed and they were filled with fear and it says we have seen strange things today. This was incredible. Put yourself in that place. All three of these Gospels, accounts of this story, they end the same way. They marvel and they glorified God. That's what healing should always do. Glorify God. How many people do we see on TV and in every other forum that are taking the glory away from God? as they do their healing services and all these various things. If it points back to me, points back to you, then you just have robbed God of the glory that's only due him. Only God can heal. And if he chooses to use us as a vessel to pray for somebody, to to see a person miraculously healed, then we better be people that are quick to push the glory up to him and never to rob the glory from God. Mark says that they were all amazed and they glorified God. That fear, that reverential fear that they had of just saying, we're in the presence of the Messiah. We're in the presence of the living God. Only God could do what was just done here. He forgave this man of his sins and he raised a paralyzed man from that cot and he walked out of this room. That same Jesus that did this on that day is the same Jesus that's alive today and doing those same things in our lives. We're told that they were in awe. Do you know what the definition of awe is? <laughs> awe is defined as an overwhelming feeling of reverence, admiration, And fear. They were in awe of what just took place.